0: We we tend to be the first investor into kind of newly formed companies, the majority of which are coming from universities, so spinning out from all around the world, and alongside giving cash to the founders, we offer a lot of support where we have, um, at our office in San Francisco, we have a a wet lab so people can actually do scientific work here, which is a big challenge for a young startup.
1: Welcome to Positive. Find us on Twitter at POSI, the number two IVE. This bi-weekly podcast is for active investors and founders just like you, focused on venture scale positive impacts. I'm your host, Zeka Len, an angel investor in the private capital markets here in sunny SoCal. Today's guest is Alex Copolyan, a partner at IndieBio with SOSV, headquartered in San Francisco. This episode will include three sections, first, from the farm, next, bridge to science, and last, SOSV. Welcome to the show, Alex.
0: Hey, Zach, thanks for having me. It's fun to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm excited. I think this, the pre-show is enjoyable, so hopefully the rest of the show will be, too. You're you an incredibly smart guy, and I really appreciate you taking your time out of the day today to share more about what you're working on, your background, etc. So I'd like to just kind of start and um, break right into the first section, which is a little bit about you and how you got into this space as a partner with IndieBio. Can you tell us a bit about your origin story? Yeah, I mean, when it
0: comes to indie bio, it, it was a bit of a winding road. Um, my educational background was in, in clinical pharmacy, which is definitely a, a couple steps away from what I do now. And that was, you know, working with patients on specifically people with you know chronic disease, and I knew very early that uh, I, I wasn't one for bureaucracy, <laughs> and uh, felt like working in the clinic was something that I, I think is meaningful and important, but wasn't where I wanted to stay. So. I took a couple detouring routes kind of between the world of of global health, working for a nonprofit called PATH based out of DC, um, doing some work with a a small startup that was more around behavior change um, and preventive medicine through through that behavior change, as well as um, some work in kind of event organizing the impact world. And through some kind of serendipity and and kind introductions, I met the IndieBio team pretty early on into the, the program's existence back in the end of 2015. And, uh, I've been here ever since.
1: Amazing. And, uh, let's, let's go in the Wayback Machine and t- kind of get to know you a bit and kind of why, why this is something meaningful to you. Obviously getting into clinical pharmacy is something to presumably help others, which I really admire. But tell me more about kind of your, your origin story. Like, yeah, I mean,
0: I can't claim that I had a, a set path at any point in my life. I, I'm probably not the best long-term planner actually. Um, so it was something where, you know, my family moved to the U.S. when I was really young. Um, and we were you know, very fortunate in that to get, to get help to come here and uh, grew up in the Midwest,
1: in Iowa. And can, can I stop you for a moment? Oh, sure. Yeah. Whereabouts did your family, um, uh, where did they move from?
0: Uh, I was born in Minsk, Belarus, which is where we um, left as well when I was a little under a year old.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. And you moved to Iowa. Your, your folks must have found that to be a, quite an interesting change. Definitely.
0: I mean... Yeah, coming to the U.S. with uh, two kids and, and, you know, a couple suitcases is, you know, obviously a really hard transition and I really respect and appreciate, you know, all the opportunity that, you know, my parents worked hard to to provide as well as, you know, living in the U.S. um, has given. I think that was one of the things for, I think as, you know, all immigrant families come to the U.S., you know, for that new opportunity and freedom uh, that, you know, just is not accessible everywhere and growing up in the Soviet Union for my, for my family, certainly, uh, the opportunities were not as wide as they are here. So, you know, just really lucky to be able to come here and, and grow up and be in a state where, you know, there was a good education. I was able to kind of go to school, uh, go to college and, and you know, even go to grad school after that.
1: and, um, I think you, you may have mentioned, but your, your parents, were they entrepreneurs or one of your parents or were they in, um, uh, starting a business?
0: No, I mean, <laughs> growing up, when and where they did I, options for that, you know, it was a very different world there. So both my parents are originally actually trained as engineers, um, and my dad continued being an engineer uh, after moving to the U.S. and that's kind of where he built his career. Um, and then my mom went back to school when we came here, and she's been a nurse for for a, quite a, quite a while now. So it's been kind of the main uh, path with her career, and probably where I obviously first got exposed to healthcare and. and you know, through her meeting other, you know, friends and neighbors who are doctors and in the medical system, so kind of could get a quick glimpse into that world.
1: Fantastic. Could, could I ask what type of engineering your father was was engaged in?
0: Yeah, he so he um, had a background in electrical engineering, but uh actually worked for um, a company that worked on a very specific part of kind of the refinery process called a compressor, which I, I am embarrassed to say I don't know a lot about myself. <laughs> um,
1: for sure. so he
0: was someone who you know, traveled around the world to, to work on site um, in a lot of different, very interesting places. So I kind of grew up, uh, you know, he was very present in my life, but also kind of like see pictures of him you know, on, you know, six different continents. And I thought that was always really inspiring and interesting.
1: Wow. And what led you into the clinical pharmacist? I imagine that's not something that someone just lands on and says, I am going to be a clinical pharmacist. What was that path like for you? Did you start a, start off in biology and, and, and branch out in, in that direction? Or how, how did it go for you? Where did you have the, the inclination?
0: Yeah, it was, it was a couple things coming together, I suppose. Um, I went into to college not really knowing what I want to do. I think mean, like a lot of people and, um, I figured I'd probably do something in the world of science. My, uh, you know, I have an older brother who was who in the world of business and finance, and that wasn't really kind of where I thought I wanted to go. Um, but I didn't, you know, besides science, I, I really liked history. Uh, <laughs> I didn't see exactly mm-hmm. what I would do if I studied history mostly in college. So um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I did kind of all the basic biology, chemistry, interest, stuff like that, and was evaluating kind of different routes. You know, med school being one, My dentist really encouraged me to do dentistry, um, but it wasn't something I I particularly wanted to do. And I only really thought about pharmacy, uh, you know, a couple people got it on my radar. I had had a neighbor who um, I was friends with the kids and their mom was a pharmacist at a hospital nearby. Um, One of my roommates actually, he was planning on going to pharmacy for a long time. So through him, he kind of encouraged me to study and take kind of the entrance exam called the PCAT. And then... Uh, I actually played ultimate Frisbee for a, about a decade. And one of the older guys on my team was in pharmacy school and really like, yeah, it kind of encouraged it. So, uh, you know, I just applied to to one one grad program during my junior year at the University of Iowa. Uh, it was a good school and I had the prereqs. So I thought I'd just give it a shot and, uh, you know, no, no harm in trying. And I got in and after a while of kind of thinking it over, talking to alumni and stuff, I decided uh, it seemed like it was... profession that had enough you could go down a bunch of different routes like you weren't stuck in just one thing so Mm -hmm. i I took the leap
1: incredible and your undergrad was in it was was also in um, chemistry or
0: it was a bit more general kind of health sciences so chemistry Mm -hmm. biology a little bit of physics stats kind of all that stuff
1: that sounds like a fascinating degree to to get for an undergrad if you're going to branch out into clinical pharmacy as well and that that ties in perfectly for why you chose IndieBio. Can you tell us more about IndieBio and their their focus? I think the name gives away some of it, but maybe a bit about the mission and a bit about kind of the overall, uh, our overarching um, focus area? Definitely, yeah.
0: So we're a a kind of a program-based venture capital um, group, part of a larger fund called SOSV. Um, But IndieBio, we, you know, really focus on um, funding scientific entrepreneurs who are, you know, working on what we think is, you know, Really innovative, transformative technology um, for human or planetary health, and that's really, really broad in terms of the areas. So it, it really is you know anything in you know human health side, which might be you know new therapeutics, genomics, telemedicine, diagnostics, and, and beyond. And then in, in planetary health, a lot of um, food and agriculture, um, you know, biomaterials and new materials, industrial biology, and, and kind of chemistry. So. We'll look really broad and it's really focused around, um, we, we tend to be the first investor into kind of newly formed companies, the majority of which are coming from universities. So spinning out from all around the world and alongside giving cash to the founders, we you know offer a lot of support where we have, um, at our office in San Francisco, we have a, a wet lab. So people can actually do scientific work here, which is a big challenge for a young startup. Um, we provide kind of hands-on mentorship on Thinking of product development milestones, um, learning how to do business and sales, fundraising and storytelling, as well as kind of a bit, some of the intangibles of starting a company, like how do you think about creating culture? How do you hire people? How do you manage conflict and communication and things like that?
1: Yeah, I understand those those um, intangibles to be very critical, especially for scientific founders to to learn some of those soft skills, so to speak.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I think oftentimes I think especially young PhDs and postdocs are, are overlooked as founders. Um, there's been a bit more history of them. You know, they make they may invent something, but then, you know, they create the IP and then it gets sold by the university to a large company or, or someone else. And part of the core of IndieBio is kind of this idea that we think scientists have the skill set, the training through a PhD that lends itself really well to a startup. Um, if you embrace that same kind of Creative mindset, um, hypothesis-driven experimentation—all that applies to the business. So, people who who really are excited about the idea of being a CEO, we think scientists make great founders.
1: I, I like how you you see that as an overlooked opportunity set, and how you're exploring to empower them and such. That's just just really great. I, I truly admire. And um, how does how does the typical sort of investment cycle look like for these types of startups? Do you look at them more like as patient capital, or do you? Do you see them as opportunities for more mergers acquisitions, or do you even do you even uh, participate, like say, in um, IP tech transfer similar to the the universities? Yeah, so we're definitely
0: patient. Um, our fund is you know up to thirteen years. That we can stay involved with companies with the way we're structured, um, and we understand whether you're developing like a new diagnostic or a new therapy um, that takes years and years to you know, be proven safe and effective and, and go to patients. Or on the flip side, if you're you know developing a you know a new biological input for agriculture to increase crop yields and get rid of chemicals and, and others these things take a long time they take a lot of investment um so you have to be patient we aren't we aren't really looking for you know short flips and exits um we want to be long-term kind of partners to all the founders in terms of kind of the ip university side um, you know companies create ip while they're with us um, they own that definitely but uh kind of going earlier we do Interact directly with a lot of, you know, professors, grad students, tech transfer offices, and um, can you know definitely help company, you know, founders that are even pre-company formation think about what's the right timing to start a company, how do you build the early part of a team. So we get involved really from the earliest stage.
1: And you you used the word safe, which I thought was wonderful, how you talked about the the types of trials and getting to that that state of safety. And um, I I think that ties into the discussion that we were were planning to have about impact. I'd like to understand how your your, um, fund or your program looks at impact for the types of things that aren't as obvious, something like clinical trials or something like that. Definitely. I
0: think our overall lens and, and mission of human and planetary health, I think everything we fund, you know, to pass that criteria of can you cure disease or, or, you know, provide a new means of food production or take carbon out of the atmosphere or turn it into something of value. I think fundamentally, all these companies have a mission that is inherently impactful and helpful to people on the planet. People often ask us, like, are we impact investors? Do only impact investors invest here? And I think actually, I, w- I would say in, in a way, no, like we just, we fund things that are so at their core, uh, we think better that they're, they're just, you don't have to be an, uh, you know, a venture philanthropist, so to speak um to back these companies. Someone can be f- purely profit driven and see what's being done here and be like wow this is inevitable. It's part of the future and it's also going to have a lot of really great side effects of doesn't pollute waterways or doesn't emit carbon or you know helps cure diseases. So we think we want to fund things that are at their very core um beneficial for humanity
1: yeah I often say that efficiency isn't sexy and um, oftentimes it's it's one of those things we just kind of disregard as non impactful because there's a cost-saving element and it, it I don't know I mean creating jobs could be seen as impactful as well so it, it's it's just it's not necessarily mm-hmm. um, anything else than a word and I really great food for thought you're providing um, okay so we're I, I think before we move into the bridge for science that I can see us transitioning there. I think I heard you say that startups can go through your program. You have this 12 year fund and it sounds like you can help them transition elsewhere. So maybe that's something we tie into SOSV and how that, how that augments your, your, your current fund. Does that, does that seem right?
0: Definitely. Yeah. So for, for context, IndieBio, we're part of this larger fund called SOSV, um, started originally by, by Sean O'Sullivan, who's a among many lives, and an entrepreneur himself, as well as an investor, uh, with some other very cool um, chapters mixed in. And um, we're currently in the fourth fund. It's a $277 million fund. And we have kind of a different structure than most VCs, um, where we have different programs around the world in different industries. So IndieBio does a lot of life science and kind of adjacent stuff. Um, Hacks, which is based out of Shenzhen, China, it's a really well-known and big hardware kind of manufacturing program. So I do a lot Incredible. of you know med-, med tech, advanced robotics, you know industrial automation, and many other things I I wouldn't say I mentioned. And uh, so that's a kind of a similar program to us for hardware folks. We have one in blockchain based out of New York, uh, a mobile focused one in Taiwan, and, and you know a few others around the world.
1: How many people do you think work across both organizations or all the SOS under the SOSV umbrella? And the- in terms of um, support staff, et cetera, and partners and such?
0: Man, that's a good question. I mean, we've been growing a lot in the last year, so I've I've definitely lost track. Uh, I would imagine I'm going to ballpark and say 80, but I think I'm probably wrong. That's incredible.
1: That's really great. You guys are doing incredibly well. Congratulations on all of the successes. It's it's tremendous to have you on the podcast. So let's break out into the bridge for science and go back toward this early stage science aspect. you know, I, I wanted to explore the topic a little bit surrounding what it looks like for, for PhDs or other engineers that know that they have a little bit more R&D to, to, that they need to develop prior to scaling via venture capital. Um, and you talked a bit about like how you structure the, the program at IndieBio, but I'd like to maybe dig in a little bit and understand what some of the grant landscapes look like or other public-private partnerships look like that can help bridge those startups that want to break out and move toward venture capital?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty broad. And I think the ecosystem for science based startups has been only growing. And I, and I think right now, there's there's more money, you know, the Congress has passed other bills to, you know, inject more cash into the, you know, basic sciences, which in translational sciences, which is really great. Um, I think so a lot of our founders are, you know, getting grants while they're in their PhD or postdoc to be working on kind of a foundational scientific innovation, or maybe a a translational part to it. But if they're looking to leave a couple paths, we tend to see people taking, Um, pretty common people apply for, um, SBIR grants, which are, Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a couple stages there. And the first stage is usually like roughly a quarter million plus or minus, you know, you know, five to six digits there. And these are grants
1: for the business prior to once they're spun out from the lab. Am I correct in that?
0: Yeah, you have to be structured as a you know a, a actual company. You're you're not an academia mm-hmm. anymore. Or qualify for that. It's, it's focused on small businesses, um, non dilutive, um, and it goes through kind of a different process of how it's evaluated and scored and kind of what the money can or can't be used for than you know venture capital. But it's definitely a powerful tool that a lot of people look for, um, mm-hmm. and can definitely at times for really hard tech companies be a key to maybe. Uh, de-risk the company enough that vcs you know are ready for it they see the prototype or see it in the field maybe or you know with some sort of partner that's really powerful one i think increasingly there's a lot more university driven or kind of other nonprofit kind of incubator accelerators and these may not provide a bunch of cash but sometimes they'll give a little bit you know in the tens of thousands Um, they might give access to labs and other kind of builder space so infrastructure Mm -hmm. that people need and occasionally, they might actually have corporate or you know industry partners that are looking for innovation in a certain area, and they might provide mentorship or even opportunities to pilot a um, technology in the field.
1: I see. In in IndieBio, it, it, it did. I didn't hear you say the word venture studio, so I don't think that's necessarily the structure you're looking at. It, how would you frame yourself again, please? If I got that wrong, apologies.
0: Um, that's a good question. So we. The core, you know, we have a four and a half month long, roughly four and a half month long accelerator program. Accelerator Um, program. And uh, one of the things that also we we do that, you know, we emphasize for founders is, oftentimes people think of an accelerator as you come in, you spend that, you know, four or five months with them and then you kind of leave and you, you never come back type of thing, but for us, because we're, we get really involved with the founders so people
1: mm-hmm.
0: who join indie bio they, they move to the bay area they work in the same office as me and the rest of my team so we're kind of every day with them and really digging deep into the company and being very hands-on. and like
1: you said there's a lab, a lab there so you actually get to look over people's shoulder while they're they're experimenting yeah i mean definitely yeah
0: it's really cool to, to see people build and, and founders like that how oh, bad um, at the same time, we, we, we make sure you know we're not micromanaging everything they do. Um, and no, and no, no, no. Of course, yeah, I was yeah. just a, making yeah.
1: a visual analogy. That's all. Yeah, I'm and trying. T- what I'm, I'm trying to get an invite to like meet some cool scientists is basically what, <laughs> where we're going with oh, this
0: Zach, exactly. I mean, next time you're in town, uh, you 100 right. always have an invite to swing by. And that would be amazing. Uh, you know, downstairs we had you know Memphis meets now Upside Foods grew their first oh. lab grown meatball. We've had companies, oh you know making art of, like artificial mechanical kidneys and, and doing demonstrations of them, like Whoa. filtering liquids through that. you have
1: pe- not joking. No, I'm totally not. We
0: have, you know, plant science companies who build miniature greenhouses to grow, you know, either, you know, plants that make protein sweeteners or, or rice that can grow in salt water. So like, if you're here normally, there's always a lot of action and, and some cool stuff to and, check
1: out. I mean, I may quit my day job and try to sign up to. <laughs> this is incredible. It's so, <laughs> it seems like almost out of some sort of science fiction film or something, the types of things that you're backing. Tell me more about um, some specific startups that, I mean, you said Memphis Meets and um, you said Impossible. Did I?
0: Not Impossible. They actually the, started before we uh, were right. around it.
1: Mm-hmm. And are you still working in the alternative protein? Uh, space currently, or um, are there some startups, uh, Memphis Meats being one, but are there others uh, that you've worked with?
0: Yeah, I mean, we've probably funded 45 or so companies across food and agriculture, and quite a few are in alternative proteins. So, you know, uh, Upside Foods, formerly Memphis Meats, is one that you mentioned kind of a leader in the space. There's quite a few others. Um, Clara Foods, which is uh, making animal-free egg whites. So they're using yeast fermentation. So essentially the way you kind of brew beer using yeast, they're uh, brewing yeast that are programmed to to spit out the individual proteins that make up an egg white. And those have a bunch of different use cases across the food sector. Um, They're kind of one of the very first companies in that whole sector. Perfect Day is a company that makes milk proteins in a similar way. They actually launched their first animal-free dairy ice cream a little while ago. The brand is called Brave Robot. And it's starting oh, well, to, I start love to the roll name. out. Yeah, and, and the ice cream is really, really good at the same time. So, um, Easy. I would definitely recommend it. So, there's a bunch of other, you know, Finless Foods is the first company doing lab grown seafood. They're focused on bluefin tuna, actually, both plant based and cell based. Um, then there's a, a number of companies um, making plant based foods. Uh, the Notco is a great company out of Chile. They have this blend of they have a team of chefs with kind of a, an AI in the loop that is making new recipes and formulations that then the humans are making and trying. And they um, just last year launched their animal free milk across the U S and whole foods oh and Sprouts and a bunch of other stores. So there's quite a few more, but I don't want to just be Is it, has it past the long.
1: Turing test or something similar where the taste test to where people <laughs> can't tell the difference between cow milk and
0: Uh, I, I, I've heard, don't give it away. Don't give it away. (laughs) (laughs) I think the milk is, is like the real thing. Um, I would recommend you go out. Yeah. Anyone could try it. Um, it's, you know, frost, you can, you you can bake with it. You can frost with it to make cappuccinos All this stuff. So it's, it's really versatile.
1: I mean, all of these things to me are obvious impacts from the water, from the water use standpoint, the climate standpoint, the land use standpoint, and, and potentially the health standpoint as well. Um, for you though, um, personally, what are the type, and I don't want you to play favorites and all that, but tell me the type of impact focused startups that excite you the most. I mean, you sound really passionate about this, but what are some other categories, um, it, it, with IndieBio that get you really jazzed up?
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and like you said, it's kind of hard to pick at times, uh, because <laughs> right. I, you know, admire so many of the founders who are, are working on these things here. I think my, given you know my personal interest, in, um, food and nutrition has always been something I've, I've really been interested in. So all the stuff we do, whether it's the ones I mentioned or things you know in the field in agriculture, um, you know, one of my favorite companies is a company called BeeFlow, working on kind of better pollination, which is good for both bee health as well as. Um, you know, saves water and, and increases yields. It's a, a couple. This I love.
1: isn't like robotic bees or something. I, I don't know if that <laughs> that's even done. No, <laughs> no. The, <laughs> I d-
0: definitely seen that stuff too. Um, this is oh you know, this is using real bees. I think uh, bees are such a you know incredible creatures. That I, you know, making a yes. robot that can do everything they do, I think, is I, that that would be wild engineering. But um, yeah, they're working with real <laughs> bees, and um, founder Matthias is been a great leader for them they just raised the series a that was announced but they're both looking at how do you leverage and improve bee health so they you know we've we all read about colony collapse and bees being a major issue you know right the bees the bees that BeeFlow flow is managing with kind of some of their unique insights into bee nutrition have Mm -hmm. um, better survival rates they fly for longer and colder weather so they're just more effective pollinators interesting and i understand
1: I'm sorry, oh, go, go, go ahead go go ahead. I was going to say I understood that like herbicides is is something of an issue in in the bee, bee pollination uh, environment. and it sounds like there's perhaps some mitigation to that definitely. Um,
0: and I think that herbicides are a huge challenge in finding you know, new and better alternatives that are more friendly to insects in the environment you know what you know runoff is is an important thing that you know we're looking at too, but I think one of the things I've seen with Matthias is uh, if you improve kind of the baseline health of the bees, you know, they're, they're, they can generally, they're more able to survive and, and manage that. Oh, you know, don't, I'm not a bee scientist, so don't quote me at all, no, that, no, but that's no, kind no, of no. my observation.
1: I appreciate you sharing this. I mean, it's just really hopeful in this discussion, if nothing else ever comes out of it, I just want to say, this is really hopeful. Um, just the, the types of solutions you're working toward. I mean, this is like, basically the future of, of humanity in my opinion. So I'm really excited just to be able to have this conversation.
0: Yeah, same. And I, I think it's, it's hard right now, you know, with the news and climate change there, there's so, it's so easy to see disaster after disaster. It's something I see. And it's, and it's hard to, to deal with when you just see bad news all the time. So I'm um, trying to balance that with seeing what are the like amazing solutions that people are developing, you know, and it's happening all around the world. Um, I think that's really important to keep hope and kind of realize that there's things that we can do to change and better the system.
1: Yeah, and, and I have to say another thing too. I don't like this um, this show to be just about focusing on the on all the positives. It's it's really to have more nuanced discussions ra- around the potential negative impacts, but also the the prospective positive impacts. And I just like that that you have um, very ethically minded scientists working on complex issues surrounding human health and safety and, um, you know, taking the time to really walk through all of the the, the necessary things to be able to ensure safety is, is just, that for me is really, uh, reassuring. Hey, I'll have to say.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, it's so important to be thinking about you know, what are first and second order kind of consequences of, of any technology and what you're building. And I think, um, I think it goes back to kind of where a lot of people start, you know, for a love of science and wanting to solve a problem in the world. So uh, if they were building something that wasn't doing that well, I think ever, you know, ever and I see they wouldn't be doing it at this very kind of fundamental level.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand. And can you, before we break out into the third section, SOSV, can you give me an indication you talked about this working in the lab and the experimentation aspect, but I guess what I'd like to know is maybe how you personally think about things like um, sort of non-obvious risks in terms of how you assess the potential companies you, you work with? How do you go through that pro- process without being specific to any particular company?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple, couple of ways we look at companies. Um, and because we do a lot of sectors, it, it can vary a bit. Um, one of the things we know, we're funding really, really early stage, really dip, you know challenging technology. So it's not going to be, Oftentimes you won't have a tangible end product. You won't have, it won't be in the market yet. So you don't kind of see the dynamics there. You you have to, there's a market risk of it. Yes, there's a market risk in thinking about like, where is society moving? What are societal trends? And you can say that with, you know, alternate proteins, whether plant or lab grown, like, will people accept that if we can overcome the challenge to it? For environmental technologies, understanding like, are there you know, pressures to change within industry or consumers. Like those are some of the questions we have to figure out. There's a lot of technical deep diving. So figuring out, you know, what are the, a lot of people have a technology platform. Where do we kind of use that? So, um, where you know, what are the early markets and early adopters we can focus on um, and understanding is the technology kind of ready to be brought out and prototyped and, and brought out in that way. So we spend a lot of time digging into the what are the techno economics what are the remaining scientific risks that have to get figured out in the lab before you can manufacture and scale something up um that's definitely a big one and then we also given this early stage i think all all VC talk about we have to figure out how we can evaluate the founders i think that it, that's one area where it's important we have a team of seven people who are digging into all the companies and meeting the founders so we can balance out each other's perspectives and biases, hopefully, with how we kind of evaluate the founders, um, looking for people who are, you know, really passionate, motivated, able to kind of think quickly on their feet, both taking feedback, but not bending over. If, if you know, someone disagrees with them, they can synthesize, but maybe stand their yeah. ground. And if they know they're right, um, how they kind of handle communication, both within their team and outside of their team. Those are just a few of the things we kind of look at. And we have kind of a multi-stage interview process that kind of helps us get to know people and build trust in both directions.
1: Well, wow, building trust and, and really just finding these people that uh, that are similarly aligned. It's an exciting process, I imagine. And so tell me about SOSV, like how you look at the type. Is this similar to the types of founders they're looking for? They're, what are the types of founders that IndieBio versus SOSV may be looking for?
0: SOSV, it kind of depends on which program you're talking about. So like Hacks, so the one I mentioned doing hardware, they have kind of their own set of kind of industry areas they look to disrupt and kind of their own profile of founders. And, and the same could be said for you know, China Accelerator, which is a software, one focused in Asia and China. So they all kind of have, have different profiles, but we're all investing out of the same fund and, and looking at um, when you're running an early stage accelerator, like we all are, uh, there's kind of, I think it comes back to the people in a very, very tangible way. So everyone has their own criteria and it's based a bit on the industry and the geography and the technology, but, um, That's one of the cores that i think everyone looks at and across the firm each program is making its decisions independently but ultimately we kind of can share knowledge and background and i think work together to help the companies as we need to to go faster as well
1: you know you're presumably wanting to align these companies with the greatest success and how do you look at ownership for example
0: it's it's a bit more of a challenge in i think bio and kind of deep tech than it is in software where software um you can see it's the rounds tend to be less dilutive for founders on average because you know you have less infrastructure and capex cost. Um, it's faster to market, sales can kind of scale up a bit faster, given you have right. software instead of hardware. Um, do they
1: have, do the hardware companies tend to have bigger TAMS? Is that would that be accurate? That's a good
0: question. I mean, in some sectors, uh, if we look at our companies that are going after like meat, for example, meat is just like a giant, giant market. Yeah, right. And it's also. I mean, it's so big that you know, no one player is, is ever going to dominate that. Or right, if you're right, right,
1: right, right.
0: So it it's it's a challenge. because I, I think some software companies. That, I'm not an expert in that field either. I mean, have also huge, huge markets, especially as more of the world comes online. I think they're all can be very large. It's just a matter of you know, we want to make sure that founders retain enough equity in the company that they're incentivized. Like if a company has a big exit, you know, they get acquired or they IPO. Like the founders and early employees should. You know, we we believe get rewarded for that yeah. and for the I huge agree. amount of work they have to put in. So we're we're that's always trying to balance that. That's the
1: often overlooked. That's the often overlooked aspect of venture capital. I think most venture capitalists will, will agree with what you just said there. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think I, it's I important. And, and yeah, this is this is a founder driven industry, not a not a um, investor driven industry. Like, it, what's important is having, in my opinion, having great founders, supporting them, and, and providing them the tools, as opposed to looking at. Try, if the goal is to maximize ownership in a company that I don't, I, I view that as kind of misaligned and the goal should be to build a really impactful company and that, um, the pie will be big enough for everyone in that case.
1: Yeah. And going back to your, your, I really want to, cause I thought it was very insightful. I want to kind of reverse a little bit. You, you were mentioning about the winner take all mindset and we were talking about the size of the market and such. And I kind of wonder, is it possible to generalize for these more scientific tech opportunities with, let's say, mostly bigger TAMs, you know, like you said, the meat market? Um, Is it it easy enough to generalize, in your opinion, and say that for the most part, you're not seeing this winner-take-all mindset, but more so, like, how do we scale and keep consistent and growth, et cetera, and get to even an IPO? Is that safe to say?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I think for a lot of these, um, especially anything that's infrastructure based or like large capex, there's there's you know really big companies that exist in the world already that have distribution channels or manufacturing or, or you know other needed skill sets. So I think a lot of startups look at it as um, part are actually quite pro partnerships because they understand to really, especially reach a global scale, it's very hard to. Be hitting the, you know, doing the, the, the whole world. You know, one company might kind of do the US or North American market, but partner with an Asia or the EU or South America. So I think that happens often where it is very partnership driven in that case. Maybe if I look at companies that are maybe making, you know, new therapies to cure disease, there, if you have, you know, the best therapy in the world to, to cure some cancer or a different disease, it does tend to be that that becomes frontline and kind of the, the number one go to. So that's, Different industries have different dynamics in that way.
1: Incredible, yeah. You're you're really opening my my mind to the more the global prospect here within the verticals you focus. on. I really appreciate that. I know people will enjoy this episode a lot. Right, let's talk about climate and then sort of access as well. Actually, um, well, I guess the scientific component, but climate. What do you see the market looking like? in climate for your for SOSV or also for the work you're doing right now and some opportunities you get really excited about
0: yeah I, I think I mean every sector is accelerating right now and in, in the last couple of years I think early on in IndieBio it was we've had a thesis around climate change for quite a while and I know many people have been working on it longer than us and who laid the foundations for it certainly um and early on, I think food was food and agriculture was where a lot of kind of climate and venture and startups intersected. Now, you know, we see it growing. You know, cement is an area where we're funding and looking for more startups that people are excited about. Um, people in kind of industrial chemicals, which is not a sexy sector, but also has a lot of emissions that's important or, you know, construction materials, things like that.
1: Uh, uh, really, I just want to say thank you overall. Are there any things that you'd like to point listeners to in terms of events you may have coming up or other things you'd like people to engage with and, and also how to get in touch? I just want to say thank you again. You've been a tremendous guest. I really appreciate you today.
0: Of course. Yeah. Thanks, Zach. Um I think you know Indie bio, we're actually, I don't know if it'll be when, when this comes out, but a week from the day we're recording. So we have a demo day for our 11th cohort on July 15th. And that's something that people can check out even after the fact. Um, you, know, you can go to our website to find the links to that, or actually uh, IndieBio's YouTube has links to all of our demo days where you can see all of our companies presenting over time. Uh, so you can find find them there. You can find me and IndieBio on Twitter and kind of all the usual places too. So pretty easy to get a hold of us.
1: We've had amazing guests on the show and I'm very grateful for all of your support. The show is now available also on Google. It's available on Amazon. It's available on pretty much all the platforms, iTunes, We would love any positive feedback you could give on iTunes especially. Leave us a review and keep listening. Appreciate it.